All right. You can turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you can turn to page 573. 573. We're going to read verses 2 through 7 of Isaiah 9, but we're going to spend uh, all of our time specifically on verse 6. This Advent season... Uh, We are looking at the names of our Savior. It seemed like a helpful thing to do this year, to look at the names of the child who would be born in the manger. And two weeks ago, we looked at the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Last week, we looked at the name that the angel told both Mary and Joseph that they were going to name their son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this week, we're looking at the fourfold name. Those four great names that are listed together that describe the child that would be born. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, that is Quite a bit of ground to cover in one sermon. I may have been overly ambitious. Some ministers will go through all four of these during the entire Advent season. But I'm going to try to cover them in one sermon, so I'm going to keep my introduction brief. Fortunately for you, you have the context of Isaiah 9, if you were with us two weeks ago. When we looked at Isaiah 7, And we saw King Ahaz and the tight spot he is in between his neighbors who are pressuring him to ally with them and not the superpower, the Assyrian Empire. And the Lord gives him a third option. Neither trust in me. I will fight for you. I will be your God. I will keep you safe. But Ahaz rejects the Lord and chooses rather... Uh, he goes with earthly wisdom and says, I'm going, to trust, I'm going to trust the Assyrians. I've seen what they've done to other nations and other kings, and so I'm going to go with them. And because of this choice and this unbelief, judgment comes upon the people. You can see uh, descriptions of that judgment later in Isaiah 7. You'll also see it in Isaiah 8. And there's a great summary verse at the very end of Isaiah 8. Well, I should turn there myself. At the very end of Isaiah 8, I think it's verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. This is the consequence for the sin of God's people. The consequence for their unbelief, the judgment that is coming, coming upon them. They will be thrust into deep darkness. But then comes chapter 9. And in chapter 9, it's as if a switch flips and hope returns. Light is coming. The deep darkness that the people are covered in is receding. And the sun is rising. And it all, we will see, centers around The birth of a baby. And the birth of this child is going to drive away the consequences of sin. 
His arrival is going to undo the effects of sin. And he will come to right all that is wrong and fix what is broken and seek those who are lost. He is a king who is intimately aware of the needs of his people. And he has come to provide for them all exactly what they need. You might ask the question, reading through this passage, this is a well-known Christmas passage. We we sing it, we read it, we know it. And you, you might have thought, why list all of them together? Why not just pick one? Why have all four? Well, I hope to show you that it is because he is a complete Savior. And he is all we need. He is everything we need. And the salvation he is going to work is comprehensive. Hence the four titles. You know, I I heard Sinclair Ferguson preach on this text, and he said that the Lord Jesus is all these things, all the time, to all his people. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, all the time to all his people. He's everything we need, and everything we require is freely given through him when we receive it by faith. So we're going to look at these four, but before we do, let's pray and then read our text. Father God, I pray that you would show us our need. Would you show us our lack of wisdom and our inability to be obedient and do anything good on our own and to love perfectly and how how we, we can't love perfectly. We're so much better at fighting than we are loving and how, Father, we need peace because we are we are broken. We are not whole. So, Father, would we see all of this? Would we see our need and would we see the answer, the comprehensive remedy in your Son, Jesus Christ, who was born for us and for our salvation? Father, would you be with us during this time? Strengthen and grow your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So the first of this fourfold name is Wonderful Counselor. And in this name, we learn that the child who will be born is perfect wisdom. You know, when you look around at the world surrounding us, it is pretty obvious that there is an enormous lack of wisdom. Wisdom is in short supply today. It doesn't matter where you look. You can look in the rich neighborhoods and you can look in the poor neighborhoods. In the rich families and the poor families, the middle class families, it doesn't matter. There's a lack of wisdom. You can look in rural America, suburban America, and in our major cities, and you'll find serious want of wisdom. You know, there's a lot of several mentions to government in this text, and whether it's a local county government, state government, or federal government, there's a lack of wisdom. It's easy to hammer the government, but what about ourselves? In the pews, in church leadership, for those standing behind the pulpit, too often wisdom is in very short supply. Now, it doesn't really matter. Everywhere you look in human society, this is the case. Now, Foolishness, on the other hand, is ubiquitous. Foolishness is everywhere. Just open your eyes and you can see it. And I think we can all agree that foolishness comes so easily to us, almost naturally. Where pursuing wisdom is difficult, And being wise and speaking wisely and living wisely is is hard. But being a fool is easy. It takes no effort at all, which is why we see it so often. And we see wisdom so rarely. And the reason for this God teaches is because there is a deeper underlying issue. It's not simply that we need to be Educated. It's not simply that we need to resolve to make better decisions. There's something deeper than that. There is a sin issue at the core of our being. And that's what causes wisdom to be so scarce and foolishness to be so pervasive. I'm going to be... Quoting over and over again today, a name many of you have heard of, a name that is kind of common in the Reformed evangelical world, Big Eva. Uh, This name is common, the name Paul Tripp. He's a biblical counselor. And 
In my research, I found a very short article he wrote on the fourfold name, and I'm going to revisit it uh, during these four names. But uh, the first thing Tripp says is this, quote, Sin reduces us to fools. At the epicenter of our foolishness is a street-level denial of God. Not philosophical atheism, but a denial of our need for God and a belief that we can live life on our own. As the wonderful counselor, Jesus comes to rescue fools from themselves. End quote. So sin makes us fools. Do you want to... Do you know what a Geiger counter is? I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's this little device you can hold in your hand and you can use it to measure radiation. They still use it today around Chernobyl, the site that blew up in, was it 86, I think? And the closer you get to the reactor, the higher that Geiger counter is going to read. Well, imagine you had a Geiger counter for our foolishness. And you're tracking the foolishness and you're making your way to the core, to ground zero of foolishness. When you get there, what you will find is a denial of God. And we hear that and like Tripp says, we instantly think atheism. I'm not an atheist. I'm not denying God. He said it's not a philosophical denial. We we deny God when we live like we don't need him. We may not deny him with our lips, but when you look at our lives, how we live life on a daily basis betrays the fact that we don't really think we need him all that much. The easiest example here is our lack of prayer. You know, if we... If we really believed we needed him, we would cry out to him. But when we don't, we're betraying the fact that I've got this. I don't need you. That's the epicenter of foolishness. And that's what the Lord Jesus came to free us from. That's what he came to combat as Wonderful Counselor. Now, let's talk about that name, Wonderful Counselor. What does the name Wonderful mean? When we hear that name, we think of how we would normally use it we, to describe maybe a vacation. Oh, it was, the beach was wonderful. Uh, or, or a meal. This, that steak was just, oh, Wonderful. Or maybe getting to spend time with a lifelong friend you haven't seen in a while. You had a wonderful time. That use of the word is subjective and emotional and it is not the meaning of wonderful counselor. You could rename this title supernatural counselor. Miraculous counselor. That's what is happening here. You can see how the Bible uses the word wonder. And a great example comes from Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is speaking of the Exodus. Story we all remember. I hope you remember those who have been here for the past two or three years. You'll remember we 
slog through Exodus together. Uh, But Psalm 78 is speaking of Exodus. And the psalmist says, In the sight of their fathers, he, the Lord, performed wonders in the land of Egypt. He divided the sea and let them pass through and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly. Those are wonders. The plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the water from a rock. Those are wonders, supernatural events that only God can do. When we apply that to the child that will be born, we see he is a supernatural counselor, a divine counselor. In him is counsel and wisdom that is unnatural and cannot be found anywhere else on the face of the earth. He's not just a sweet, delightful, pleasant counselor. He is a heavenly counselor. Now we're all familiar with the signs and wonders that Jesus performed. We read of them in the Gospels, the story of raising Lazarus from the dead, healing lepers, feeding the 5,000, calming the wind and the waves. But have you ever thought, not only did the Lord perform wonders, but he himself was a wonder. He himself was a wonder. One commentator said, he is that which surpasses human thought and power. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is a wonderful counselor. And what did this wonder come to do? Well, I just answered it. To be our counselor. To bring the wisdom of heaven to an earth that is saturated with foolishness. We can read of this uh, in God's word. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. The branch is an image of the the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the final Davidic king. And God says, I will raise up a righteous branch and he will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Man, don't we all long for a wise king who would execute justice and righteousness in the land? He'd be the first of all time. Jesus Christ is that king. And here's another. If you're aware of your sin and your need, this one hits close to home. It's from Isaiah 53, and we'll bounce around Isaiah 53 a little bit today. Uh, Isaiah writes this. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So you think of how important it is that he is called Wonderful Counselor. By his perfect knowledge, many centers will be Many sinners will be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, our wonderful counselor knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly what must be done to accomplish your and my salvation.
You know, if we can trust him to do that, we can trust him to guide our steps and to lead us safely home and to be a lamp to our feet. He is the corrective to our unbelief and foolishness. And he corrects that foolishness by showing us just how much we need him. He's our wonderful counselor. He's also mighty God. In him is perfect wisdom and there's also perfect power. You know, thinking about ourselves, we are not only prone to foolishness, but what about our wills? When we just can't do what we know we're supposed to do. Sin has corrupted our wills so that we are incapable of living in a wise, God-honoring way and we're disobedient. We hurt one another, sometimes intentionally or unintentionally. We are created to worship God and love one another, and yet it seems that we're powerless to do that. We are weak, frail, feeble sinners. But we have a mighty God. Paul Tripp again says, quote, Sin doesn't just reduce us to fools. It also renders us unable. Unable to be who God designed us to be and do what he created us to do. When God unleashed his might through Jesus to defeat sin and death for all eternity, he also empowered us to desire and do what we would not be able to do without his son working in and through us. There was a lot there. Tripp tells us, he reminds us that we're weak and we fall again and again like Paul in Romans 7. We don't understand our own actions. We have a desire to do what's right, but we don't have the ability to carry it out. Does that sound familiar? And then the things we hate, the evil we know we shouldn't do is what we keep on doing. We desperately need a mighty God to do to come and do what we cannot. We need a mighty God to come and fight for us and to give us his spirit so that through him we might grow in obedience and holiness. Mighty God came and was victorious so that by his grace we would be enabled to do what he designed us to do. Talking about fighting here, Mighty God coming and fighting. That's, that's the weight behind this name. You could change the title Mighty God to Warrior God. That's what the word mighty is getting at. That a, a, a God who was born to fight for you. A hero who is mighty to save. I, I love the picture we're going to get in our final hymn today. And let all mortal flesh keep silence. There's a picture of mighty God coming to vanquish our enemies. We see it in the third stanza. We'll sing in a moment. It, it says this, Rank on rank the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light from light descending from the realms of endless day comes the, power, the powers of hell to vanquish as the darkness clears away. 
That's who has come. That's why he has come, to fight and defeat Satan, sin, and death forever. If you remember back to early October, Bill Davis preached through, uh, preached uh, a couple sermons from Genesis 3. And he showed us the promise that, that the promise of God that there is going to be an ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that the serpent would bite the heel of the seed of the woman, and, but that he would crush the serpent's head. You remember that? Well, the arrival of this child is a shot across the bow. That the opening barrage has begun, signaling uh, that mighty God has come to defeat the enemy of our souls. I mean, you just think of the reaction that Nathan read this morning in our text, the reaction of Herod. How else would you explain that? I'm going to kill every male child in this land under a certain age out of a desperate attempt to, uh, to eradicate this threat. The enemy of our souls was terrified of mighty God, and he will fight, and he will struggle, and he will believe himself to be victorious. He should have known better because our God consistently saves through weakness. If you look back at chapter 4 of what we just read, at the very end, there's this reference to the day of Midian. You remember the story of Gideon and Midian? Gideon is, has an army of 20,000, and he's going to take on the Midianite army, and, but that's 20,000 is far too many for Gideon. And so the Lord whittles Gideon's army down to 300 soldiers. 300. And then the Lord defeats the Midianites. The Lord always saves through weakness. He did so with Gideon. And then when you have his people who are uh, thrust into deep darkness, how will they be saved? Is he going to send the host of heaven to come and rescue them and to drive the darkness away? What is he going to do? A child is going to be born. A son given. And in the eyes of the world, the son will be weak. So weak that he would be crucified and he would die. But it's through that weakness that the Lord saves. The author of Hebrews says, Through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We have a mighty God who is powerful and has fought for us and won our salvation in the most unlikeliest of ways. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, what's third? Everlasting Father. Now this one, on first appearance, could strike you as a bit confusing. Because why is the Son of God called the Everlasting Father? We are Trinitarian after all. I mean, this is the name of our congregation. Is this saying that the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son? No, it's not what 
this is saying there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three are the same in substance and equal in power and glory. We are Trinitarian. That's what we are convinced the Bible teaches. There's not one God who plays different roles and puts on the hat of Father and then will take it off and put on the hat of the Son and then take that off and now put on the hat of the Spirit to interact with us. That belief is a heresy that was settled in the third century. This is not teaching us that the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son. Well, what's it doing then? Well, the first thing it's telling us is that the Son who will be born, this mighty God, this wonderful counselor, will reveal the Father to us. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father is like, read the Gospels. If you see the heart of Jesus, you will see the heart of the Father. In the face of Jesus, we see the face of the Father. And Jesus makes this clear, especially in John 14. It begins with this, the, the wonderful passage. Jesus is saying, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. And then he gives that, that brilliant, just climactic statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. And then he goes on to say that if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, if you know me, you know the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And of course, the dense disciples don't get this. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says, how long? I've been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The Son reveals the Father to us. This child will be called Everlasting Father because through him we are given a picture of who the Father is. We see the Father. To know him is to know the Father. To see him is to see the Father. Well, if he reveals the Father to us, What do we see in that revelation? I would say perfect love. Remember what we've looked at so far. Perfect wisdom, perfect power, and now perfect love. Now I know that some of you may have a hard time placing that word father and love in the same sentence together. We all have imperfect earthly fathers. Some some demonstrate that more than others. And we can have a hard time with this concept of God as father. But what we see is that he is a perfect father. Perfect 
in wisdom and power and love. And we see this love manifest itself through his adoption of us. You know, our sinful condition makes us orphans. It separates us from him. We are prodigals living in the far country. And he brings us near into his family and makes us his children. You know, you can adopt locally. You can adopt internationally. You could go, I don't know where the furthest from here would be. You could adopt from China, just on the other side of the world. And that would seem like a great distance. A great distance where you are bringing a child into your home to be your child. Well, the distance between Corinth and China does not compare to the distance between a, a broken sinner and a holy God. And yet he has closed that distance and brought us near. In John 1.12, we read, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he adopts his children and he's compassionate on his children. And this is something I have to remind myself when patience is running short is that a father is called to be compassionate to his children because our heavenly father is compassionate to us. And Jesus, again, revealing the father, revealing the father. What does he show us? He gives, he gives us illustrations of, of where he has compassion for those who are hurting. And he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He weeps over Jerusalem. He, he illustrates himself as a shepherd and his people as his sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for my sheep. I've got another example in Isaiah 40, 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That is a picture of everlasting father. One who cares, adopts, and perfectly loves. And that love is not fickle. It does not waver. It is not contingent. There are no strings attached. His eternal, everlasting disposition towards his children is that of a compassionate, perfect father. To quote Tripp again, quote, By his death, life, and resurrection, Jesus welcomes us into his family. He is the door by which we have access to God. He lavishes his fatherly love upon us. And we are blessed with all the rights and privileges of being his children. No longer separated, lost, alienated, and alone. We live forever as the sons and daughters of the king. That's why, in quote, that's why he was born. Not simply to remove the guilt of our sin, but to bridge that distance and to bring us into the family of God that we would be adopted and blessed with all the rights and privileges of being children of the king. Now, 
I know I said this earlier in the service, but how would we live if we really believed that? Not only am I forgiven, but I've been brought near and I'm a child of the King. Man, if that took hold of our heart, it would change us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, fourth and final is Prince of Peace. You know, in the same way, it's easier, it's always easier to be foolish as opposed to being wise. Isn't it also easier to fight instead of being peaceable? Again, the heart issue here is sin. When we think of peace and we have different theories of how to establish peace or how to establish utopia and peace on earth, the problem is always out there. It might be economic. It might be social. There's something out there, and if we could only fix that, if we could only educate this people in this way, then we could have peace. And the Bible says that the problem is not out there. The problem of peace, again, is in here. It's within us. And it's, it, it's more than just fighting. There is a, a brokenness and an incompleteness and a frustration that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we long for peace. Peace in our world, peace in our community, in our household. And we want lasting peace, right? We don't, we, we don't just want a good month or a good week. We want an ongoing, settled experience of peace. You know, the Hebrew word for peace is one a lot of people are familiar with. If you know Hebrew, it, it, if you don't know Hebrew, one of the words that you probably do know is shalom. It's the word for peace. And that word implies wholeness and completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity, and all of those things being permanent. Wholeness, completeness, soundness. And that shalom is only something that the Prince of Peace can bring about. When it comes to understanding this peace and knowing it, we need to know where it comes from. There's a saying I've heard over and over again just in the kind of uh, political, cultural world that politics is downstream from culture. Meaning that what we believe and how we live in culture is going to affect how we govern. So if you want to be successful and have control in politics, you need to be successful over the culture. And that image applies here with knowing peace. That we want, we want soundness and we want peace in our communities and in marriages and at, at our workplace. But all of that is downstream from peace with God. And peace in the community, peace in marriage, peace in your inner life, in your mind, it is all downstream 
from peace with God. That is our greatest need. And if we're ever going to have lasting, meaningful peace anywhere, we have to have peace with him. Last trip quote of the day. He says, quote, Sin makes us the enemies of God and casts us into constant conflict with other people. Sin is antisocial and destructive, making us better fighters than lovers. But God had a solution, and it would not be a negotiation. It was a gift. This gift was one that we could neither achieve, earn, or deserve. Peace with God. And peace with God is the only road to lasting peace with one another. End quote. Now, how do we get that peace? How do we get this peace with God that just affects everything else? It's through the death of the Prince of Peace. Go back to Isaiah 53, we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That's what the Prince of Peace brings. He fights for us. He is victorious. And what always follows victory? Peace. Peace. And more than just a peaceful, easy feeling. Real peace. Where everything that is wrong will be made right and everything sad will come untrue and everything that is broken will be made whole and everything that is incomplete will be made complete and all things will be made new. That is the peace that this child brings. Driving away the consequences of sin, undoing its effects, knowing his people, knowing their condition and providing exactly what they need. He is a complete Savior. Everything we need is found in him. It's a quit looking elsewhere for your power and your peace and your wisdom and your, forgetting the third one, my brain, quit looking elsewhere. Place your trust in him. He is perfect wisdom, perfect power, perfect love, and perfect peace. And if you come to trust him alone, you can go back, look at Isaiah 9, 6. This is the last thing I'm saying. Isaiah 9, 6. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, you can rightly read that verse. For to me a child is born. To me a son is born. Is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's my prayer for you that you would know your need, your lack of wisdom and power and love and peace, and that you would see the child born for you, and that you would rejoice. And like those angels, say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. 
Father, would you do it? Be our perfect wisdom and power and love and peace. We're unable on our own. We are feeble, frail children of dust. And yet the child born, the son given, is mighty God. Everlasting Father, wonderful counselor and prince of peace. By your grace and by faith, would we come to know him as such? We ask in his most holy and precious name. Amen.